Well, we are glad that you're here as we are uh, in this series, week number four of a five-week series. We've been talking about how the Bible is 66 books written by over 40 different people over the course of thousands of years, yet it is one unified story orchestrated by God himself, and everything in there is supernaturally placed, every detail in there for a reason. Now, Jesus was not God's backup plan. Jesus was not plan B. He was God's plan from the very beginning of creation. And now God has woven Jesus, our scarlet thread, into God's word, into God's story. And God is the conductor of the whole thing, actively seeing his plan played out on heaven and on earth. And listen, we may seemingly mess up that plan because it involves people like you and people like like me, and we may mess that up, but God's plan for redemption of the world through Jesus Christ, it prevails even through, even though he allows people like me and like you to be involved in that plan. Now, last week we discovered Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, as we were in the book of Ruth. I would encourage you to go listen to that. If you missed it, it was a great time as we were talking about that whole book. We're going to kind of pick up with that historical event at the very end of the book of Ruth. As that story is wrapped up, let me tell you kind of what happens there. As the book of Ruth begin, ends, I mean, as it ends, the leading man, his name is Boaz, he marries the leading woman. Her name is Ruth. Now, Boaz is the kinsman redeemer in this story, and you can find out about that if you listen to last week's. And he's the hero of this narrative. And as he redeems the land for Naomi, he then redeems Ruth because he marries Ruth, the Gentile bride. Now, this is where we pick up today. In celebration of this wedding, some people offer some toasts. And we're going to read those as we get started. And here's how they kind of shout out the toast in Ruth chapter 4, starting with verse 11. They say, we are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, from whom all the nation of Israel descended. May you prosper. And they say, we want the best for you. That's what they're saying. And they all knew those names, Rachel and Leah. They were married to this man named Jacob. We'll talk about that in a moment. And they were like, all the people were like, yeah, that's a great toast. Woohoo! Wedding! Yes, great toast. And then this next person screams out this toast. Verse 12. And may the Lord give you descendants by this young woman who will be like those of our ancestor Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah. And for us, we hear that and we're like, yeah, another great toast. Way to go. Woohoo! But if you know the history of the story, it's more like this. Wah, wah, wah. Because to the people hearing that, it didn't sound much like a toast. I mean, it, it sounded more like a put down, like a curse, much more like a curse than a toast, more like a slap in the face to Boaz and Ruth who were being married. And you say, well, why was it a slap in the face? Well, I'm glad you ask. We're going to go back and look at that story of Judah and Tamar that we just, they just said, hey, may it be like Judah and Tamar and Perez. Well, we're going to go look at that story and we're going to tell you about that story. But in order to do that, we have to go back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. In fact, we have to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. And that's where we're headed, the book of Genesis. So we can talk about these people that were just mentioned in that 
that toast. This is before uh, Israel was a nation. This is before they were slaves in Egypt. This is before there was an Israel, actually. This is just... before there were millions and millions of Israelites, before there were hundreds and thousands of Israelites, before there was Israelites. This is how far back we're going. God had given the promise to Abraham, I'm going to build you into a giant nation. Abraham had a son, his name was Isaac. Isaac had a son, his name was Jacob. Now it doesn't sound like a great big nation yet. Jacob had, with Rachel and Leah, who was, they were in that first toast we just read, They had 12 sons together, and God said, I'm going to use those 12 sons to launch the 12 tribes of the Israel nation. So that's what he was going to do, and that's what he did. And you would think, wow, you know, those 12 guys to launch, for God to choose them to launch the nation of Israel, they must have been amazing God followers. I mean, they must have been like super God followers, super godly men, right? Mm, no, wrong, wrong. They, they weren't. These men were normal, just like me. Well, I mean, I, I mean just like you. I know I'm not that normal. But they had, they had, like me and like you, they had insecurities. They had jealousies. These 12 guys had hang-ups, just like we do. In fact, these brothers wanted, they ganged up and wanted to kill one of their brothers, You remember the story, have you ever heard the story of Joseph and the coat of many colors? Well, Joseph was one of these brothers, and his other brothers hated him. They tried to kill him, and in fact, they said, wait, let's not kill him. Let's sell him into slavery, which is how the Israelites ended up slaves in Egypt, because that's where Joseph ended up. I digress. It's a great story. You should read. It's an amazing story. But these brothers were not all that great. They were actually quite the rabble. They were a mob of brothers. Now, one of those brothers, one of the 12, his name was Judah. And that's the guy mentioned in that second wedding toast. Hey, may may it be like Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah. We're going to talk about Judah. We're going to talk about that. And Moses wrote the book of Genesis. God told him what to write, and he put it down there, and he wrote it. And Moses took one chapter, chapter 38, that entire chapter, he kind of interrupts what he was telling a story about, and he inserts in chapter 38 this story of Judah. And we're going to, to talk about that story. Let me kind of describe it to you. As, this, as chapter 38 in Genesis begins, Judah gets married. He marries a Canaanite woman. They have three sons. And those, uh, of those three sons, the oldest, it's time for him to get married. So Judah finds him a wife. And her name is Tamar. So Tamar is married to Judah's oldest son. And God looks at this scenario, and the oldest son, God describes him as wicked, and God takes him out of the picture. The Bible actually says God kills him. It's really the first time in Scripture we find where God took somebody out like that. And it happens right there. God takes out Judah's oldest son. Now Tamar, you know, when you marry the oldest son, you're expecting your line is going to be the heir. They're going to inherit the most. And now Tamar has no child. She has no husband. And so Judah goes to his second son, second oldest. And he says, I want you to father a child for Tamar because we need an heir. 
Now, the second son is in line. If there is no heir, if there is no oldest son and no child, he's in line to get the most inheritance. So what do you think? He's excited about fathering a child that's going to now have more inheritance than him? No, he's really not. And so here's what he does. Here's the custom. We kind of talked about this last week. It's called the Leverite marriage. Well, this was not yet a law. So when they would take a brother and father a child with the the wife who whose husband had died, that's kind of that scenario. And that was the custom. So they were familiar with that. And the brother, he joins in. So here's how he joins in. So he's going to sleep with Tamar, his brother's wife. He's going to sleep with Tamar, but he does not want Tamar, his brother, to have an heir. Even though it would be his, it's for the brother. So that child would take his inheritance. He doesn't want this. So here's how he works that out. Um, The second son takes advantage of this custom And so he's taking advantage of Tamar. And so, yes, every time he sleeps with her, they they have sex, he sleeps with her. But here's how the Bible describes what happens, because he does not want his brother to have an heir. So every time they slept together, the Bible tells us specifically, he spilled his seed on the ground. Now, I forgot to remind you earlier, we are in a PG-13 worship experience today. So you, if you have any children here, you might want to make sure they're in, or you're going to be answering some tough questions with the kiddos. Um, so that's the way the Bible describes it, though. So he's taking advantage of Tamar, but he does not want her to have a child. And God looks at that scenario, and God says, you are being wicked, and God takes him out. So now Judah had three sons. One God took out was being wicked. The second one was messing with Tamar. God took out as wicked. And now Judah has one son left to fulfill this obligation. But this son is too young, not not of marrying age yet. And so he goes, and and plus Judah's looking at it. He's like, listen, those first two had something to do with Tamar, and they died. I'm not sure I want to risk this. He goes to Tamar and he says, listen, Tamar, we will get you an heir when my son is old enough to marry. But until then, go to your dad's house and live there and wait there until you hear from me. And then when he gets old enough, then we will make this happen. Now, I just want to pause a moment. Do you find it interesting that for some reason, God is very, very interested in this young Canaanite woman named Tamar. So interested that she have an, have an heir in the line of Judah that God takes two brothers out of the story. He's interested in this. God is interested in what's happening here specifically. So now Judah sends her to her dad's house. He's lost two sons. He's not sure. She goes back home to her house and she waits and she waits. She's waiting for a child, waiting for an heir, waiting for him to grow up. She waits, she waits, she waits. And it seems like Judah really had no intention of allowing his youngest son to have anything to do with Tamar. And so she's waiting. Years go by. Tamar is still waiting for Judah waiting to hear from him, waiting for him to keep his promise, 
waiting for her to have a child and an heir. And now by now, years have gone by, this youngest son is old enough to marry, but Tamar gets no word from Judah. She just gets air mail. She opens her mailbox, nothing but air comes out. No word. Judah's not, she's not hearing from him at all. And Tamar gets a little suspicious because nothing from Judah. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, and it really was a ranch because he was a sheep rancher. So at some point, Judah's wife has died. And now it's the time for the sheep to be sheared. And there was a sheep shearing party going on in town. And, and all the big ranchers, especially big ones like Judah, they were there at the sheep shearing party. So he is going to go celebrate the sheep shearing with all the other ranchers. And Judah's going to celebrate because it's, very, it's a party, very much like the harvest party, only it's sheep and shearing. But no, no running with the shears. You always carry them point down and walk slowly. But I digress. Judah heads to the sheep shearing. He says, hey guys, I'm going to go shear some sheep. But the reality is, I'm going to go find a prostitute. <laughs> That's what he was really saying. Verse 13, it's going to be on the screen. It says this, someone told Tamar, look, your father-in-law is going to Timnah to shear some sheep, to shear some sheep. Now she's been waiting around and she knows the youngest son is of age and she knows that she has been forgotten or ignored. And so Tamar decides, you know what, I'm, I'm going to handle this. I'm going to, I'm going to make sure I have an heir. I'm going to make sure I have an heir in the line of Judah, just as I was promised. Verse 14, Tamar was aware that Sheila had grown up, but no arrangements had been made for her to come and marry him. So she changed out of her widow's clothing and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. Then she sat beside the road at the entrance to the village. And here's what happens. Look at verse 15. Judah comes by. He notices her. Why? Because he was headed to town to shear some sheep. He notices her and thought she was a prostitute because that's what he was really looking for. And since she had covered her face, verse 16, so he stopped and he propositioned her. Here's what he said. He said, let me have sex with you, he said, not realizing she was his own daughter-in-law. He didn't know. So her plan was working out exactly the way she thought, flawlessly. She sure had Judah pegged. She knew. Her plan was working out great. So here's what happens. How much will you pay me to have sex with me, Tamar asked. Verse 17, well, I'll send you a goat for my flock, Judah promised. Tamar was not interested in a goat. She, she wanted some evidence, some personal items. So here's what she said. But what will you give me to guarantee that you will send the goat, she asked. Verse 18, what kind of guarantee do you want, he replied. Again, this devious plan is working out exactly the way. It's progressing flawlessly. She answered, uh, leave me your identification seal and its cord and the walking stick you're carrying. Now, that, that, that sounds kind of weird. In today's language, here's what she's saying, basically. Um, leave me your driver's license with your picture on it and your credit cards with your name on it. I'm not going to use them. 
but just leave those for me so I know you'll come back. So that's the equivalent of what those items were. They was like his driver's license and credit cards. So Judah gave them to her. Part one of her plan. Check. And the Bible then says, then he had intercourse with her. Part two of her plan. Check. And she became, the Bible says, she became pregnant. Part three. Check. And afterward, verse 19, and afterward she went back home, took off her veil, and put on the widow's clothing as usual. And it was now a great big secret. And when Judah got home, he told his buddy, he said, hey, take this goat and go pay the prostitute for me and get my driver's license and credit cards back. So the guy takes the goat and he goes into town and he heads to the, the spot where they were and he looks around and he's got the goat. It's like, where's the prostitute? She wasn't there. So he goes asking all the people around, where's the prostitute that hangs out and works this corner? Where is she? Where is she? And they're like, there's no prostitute that works this corner. And so he's left holding the goat. And he goes back home, no credit cards, no driver's license. He goes back home with the goat. And he tells Judah, he's like, Judah, here's the goat. I tried. I couldn't find her anywhere. And they said, she, there's nobody that works there. And so Judah says, oh, ooh, hmm, I'm in a pickle. <laughs> he says, we're, we're not going to go cause a big scene and go search for her because then, well, everybody will know I was at the prostitute, not sheep shearing. And besides that, um, they'll know that, that a prostitute, you know, got one over on me. And I, 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 Judah at this point is not concerned about what he did, what he had done. He was only concerned with how he appeared and his reputation. So he just says, I'm just going to count it as a loss. And he just goes on. Now, three months pass by. Three months go by. So now they're somewhere around June because the sheep shearing happens the end of March. So they're somewhere around June and now poor Tamar, her secret pops out. Uh, literally. Because she can't hide it any longer. And they find out she's pregnant. And word gets to Judah that his unmarried daughter-in-law is pregnant. And rumor has it pregnant from prostitution. And Judah... He loses it. In fact, this verse, it reads this. He says, bring her out and let her be burned. That's what Judah demanded. Wow, that self-righteous man. I mean, he's saying, let's hold her accountable. Let's just kind of ignore what I've been doing. Let's, let's make her pay, but I, we're not going to talk about me. You know, in the ancient days, it was punishable by death, to have an affair. That would, today, that would change our population. <laughs> in fact, in fact, then it was punishable by death if you were disrespectful to your parents. We wouldn't have a population. <laughs> None of us would be here. Wow. But again, I digress. Let's keep going. So, verse 25. But as they were taking her to out to kill her, she sent this message to her father-in-law. The man who owns these things made me pregnant. 
Look closely. Whose seal and cord and walking stick are these? In other words, she was saying, look at the picture on this driver's license. That's the guy. And here's his name on the credit cards. This guy's responsible. Verse 26. Judah recognized them. Busted. Immediately, he said this. She is more righteous than I am. He's saying, I I was wrong. He said, I did Tamar wrong. This was my fault, not hers. And here he says, why? Because um, this is verse 26 in the middle of it. Because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son. And then it says, and Judah never slept with her again. But you know what he did in that moment? He acknowledged her. In that moment, he gave her standing in the family. And in fact, this child that Tamar is carrying turns out to be pretty important to the family. About six months later, Tamar goes into labor. Now she's pregnant with twins. A crazy thing happens. A, a twin, and during the labor, the delivery, a twin pops his hand out, and they knew it was twins, so the nurse quickly tied a red cord around the hand. And then it was as if the other twin pushed him out of the way, so the hand pops back, and the other twin comes out. But, you know, in their society, it's kind of like track. You could win by a nose or a wrist. So whoever got there first got it. So actually the second one out that had the cord was actually considered the firstborn. The one who was actually first out that pushed the other one out of the way, his name was Perez. They named him that because it really means you broke the rules. (laughs) You weren't supposed to come out here first. You pushed your brother out of the way. Shame on you. You broke the code. His name was Perez. And guess what? That's the, that's the end of the story. I mean, that's it. Chapter 38 is over. We're done. Until we get to the book of Ruth, hundreds of years later. The book of Ruth. We talked about it last week. We started with it this morning. Ruth chapter 4, again, verse 11. So they're at the wedding celebration. They're celebrating. They're offering a toast. And they say this in verse 11. We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, from whom all the the nation of Israel descended. And everybody's like, yeah, great toast for Ruth and Boaz. And then someone else shouts out, verse 12. And may the Lord give you descendants by this young woman who will be like those of our ancestors, Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah. Wow, wow, wow. Because they knew the story. They knew the story. It sounded like a horrible toast. It sounded like, because they knew the story. I mean, that was scandalous. That was not really a great story. A father-in-law sleeping with his daughter-in-law. And the way it all came about, what is up with that? Now, Tamar did give birth to two sons. Let me tell you what happened there. Because they were not yet under the law, but the law was coming. And you know what the law said? In this scenario, they would have called this uh, a birth out of wedlock. You know, a birth out of wedlock. And that was condemned. To have a child and not be married in, under this law, was they were condemned. And you know what the result was? If you had a child out of wedlock, then you were kind of kicked out of 
the nation, the congregation of Israel. You were kicked out, the Bible said, for 10 generations because of this. It wasn't the fault of Perez. It was Judah and Tamar. It was the, their result. It was them. But Perez paid the price. And so here's this person saying, may your family be like that. Ten generations? Really? You want us to be kicked out for ten generations? That's what it sounds like. But what sounds like a curse, God has this in the Bible, that one phrase, on purpose. And you probably don't understand the significance, but we're going to explain it. And we would look at that story of Judah and Tamar and say, that is wild. Why would God put that freaky mess in there? He has a reason. We're going to talk about a reason. There's probably a lot more, but we're going to talk about one. God had that toast in there at that wedding celebration that seems so random. It seems so, so like a cut down and a put down. He had it in there for a reason. So let's continue with Ruth right there. Ruth chapter 4. Let's look at verse 18. And we're going to count the generations. If they're out for 10 generations... Why is this significant in the book of Ruth? This one little bitty comment that ties all the way back to this scandalous story. Why is this significant? Ruth chapter 4 verse 18. Let's count. This is the genealogical record of their ancestor Perez. Perez, generation 1, was the father of Hezron. Hezron, generation 2. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram, generation 3. Ram was the father of uh, Aminadab. Aminadab, uh, number four generation. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon, number five generation. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon, six generation. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Hey, Boaz, the hero of this story. Boaz, generation number seven. Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed, generation number eight. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse, number nine. Jesse was the father of who? David, generation 10. Generation 10. The 10th generation from Perez lands at none other than David, the first king of Israel in the line of Judah. 10 generations, just as it was promised by God. And to emphasize this, the book of Ruth closes with that family tree that we just read. Now, one of the reasons that this lusty tale of Judah and Perez and Tamar is included in the Bible in Genesis chapter 38 is this, because God included that lusty tale, those people, he, God included that in the family tree of Jesus. Wow. Listen to this in Matthew chapter 1. Another family tree. Matthew starts with Abraham. He said, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. That's the one that was married to Leah and Rachel in that other first family, in that first toast. And Judah was the father of Perez, whose mother was Tamar. Tamar who tricked her father-in-law into having sex with her so she could have a child. Scandalous. 
And yet, God had that included in the family tree of Jesus and recorded right there for us. You see, in Genesis, God promised that the king of Israel would come from the line of Judah, and eventually the Messiah would come from that line. And look at the great detail and the trouble that God went to in order to make sure that happened. I mean, those guys, there were people there trying to mess it up and trying to mess with Tamar and trying to not let that happen, but God made it happen. There were people running around trying to mess up God's plan. God had promised a king and a Messiah out of the line of Judah. Why was God so interested in Tamar and this line? Because the king and eventually the Messiah would come from that line. And look at who God included. We're not going to read through all this, but let me mention some of these other names that Matthew is going to mention in that line of Jesus. He talks about Tamar. We just mentioned that. Tamar who tricked her father-in-law into having sex with her. She's listed as in the genealogy of Jesus. You also find Rahab, who's the mother of Boaz. And Rahab, before she became a follower of God, she was a prostitute. And then you find names like Ruth, who was a hated Moabite person. And then you find names like Bathsheba, who had an affair with David. And she is listed in the family tree of Jesus. Yet, God used every one of them, if not even chose them. God worked through them, even though they were messed up, just like we feel. All of that, God did and orchestrated to bring us the scarlet thread. And now, now if you think that God is great, you are right. But hold on, because we're not done bragging on God just yet. I want to pause for a moment and give you some details. Uh, It's information is what it is. Information that really seems to be designed for a time like this, a century like this. Almost as if God knew, well, he did, that we would have computers and the ability to talk about what I'm getting ready to talk about. It's as if God saved this for you and for me. He's given us some special information that only in this day and time computers could we kind of figure out. He knew about this. So I'm going to tell you one example to give you an example, but it is so that the next example will make sense. So here's my, here's my first example. <laughs> These books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they represent what is called the Torah, the books of Moses. They're all written by Moses. They're all written by Moses. God told Moses what to write, and he wrote it down. Now, here's something really cool. Only a computer could figure this out. This is called the Torah. That's what the Israelites call the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah. They call it that. Uh, Now, if you go to the book of Genesis and you were to search out in Hebrew the first Hebrew letter T in Torah, and then from that point, count out 49 letters, you would come to the Hebrew letter O, the equivalent of our O. 
So that would be T, then 49 letters, then you would have O. If you went another 49 letters, then you would have the letter R. If you went another 49 letters, you would have the letter H, and that spells out Torah. You'll see it here on the next page, Torah, T-O-R-H. Isn't that weird? You go 49 letters, there's the next one, and it's 49 all the way, and there you have those letters. You say, that's kind of crazy. It's kind of weird. And then you go to the book of Exodus, and guess what? You find the same thing. So show, show them that page. You go, so you have, you have, you find the first T in Exodus in Hebrew, and then you go 49 letters, and you find the O. 49 more letters, you find the R. 49 more letters, you find the H. You say, whoa, this is getting a little weird. I'm not sure I like this. It's kind of strange. So you go to Leviticus. Don't change the page yet for me. Just kind of hang tight. You go to Leviticus. You don't find it. It doesn't work. It doesn't happen. It's not there. And you're almost relieved as if you're saying, wow. That was getting kind of strange. So it, it's not, it was just coincidence, maybe. And then you go to Numbers, and it does it again. Only this time, it's a little strange. Give us that page. This time, it's spelled backwards. You go, you find the H, then you go 49 letters, and then you go to the R, 49 letters the O, and 49 letters the T. Weird again. And then you go to the next book, and give us that page. It does it again. Backwards at 49 letter intervals every time. And you say, wow, that's, now that's wild. So that makes me wonder. Don't give us that next page just yet. Hang tight. So it makes you wonder. I'll call for it in just a moment. It makes you wonder, well, what's going on? What's going on then with the book of Leviticus? If it did it here, these two books, and then over here it does it, but backwards, what's going on with Leviticus? So when you go look at that, it doesn't do it. You try to find it, it doesn't happen. But you know what you do find? Give us that next page. You find this word, Yahweh, and it's at seven letter intervals. So here's the weird thing. This is the picture that was really designed for you and me, because they couldn't have found that out. They didn't have computers to kind of figure out what happens every 49 letters, what happens every... They couldn't have done that. So for you and me, here's... Look at the picture. The Torah always points towards Yahweh. I, I don't know what all you can do with that information, but here's what, here's what it means to me. It means God is taking his thumb and making a giant thumbprint on the scriptures and says, look, you found it. That's me. That could not have happened by accident. Moses, no matter how smart you think he is, he was not smart enough to do that. That was God making that happen so that in a day like today, when you could find that and see that, it would be like a thumbprint saying, see, really? It is me. This is mine. This is a supernatural book. These scriptures are really holy and they're mine. See, they are mine. They belong to me. Because there's no way Moses could make that work out. Cool, right? Super cool. Super cool. Now, don't go out and buy a book on Bible code because it's going to be full of a lot of junk. Don't go do that. Because this is not telling you a prophecy of what's going to happen in our future. In fact, 
God actually condemns that. Divining of, of us trying to figure out the future. God actually condemns that. So this is not to be used for that. This is just for you to say, look, God's thumbprint. This is amazing. This book is supernatural. It's his. It's real. I tell you that example which has nothing to do with what we're talking about today, so that I can give you this next example, and it makes sense. So here's my second example. On the screen is going to be Genesis chapter 38. I know you can't read that because the white has blown out all the text, but let me tell you, it's in Hebrew anyway, so you know that's the Hebrew text of Genesis chapter 38. That's the whole chapter from top to bottom. That's it. Hebrews, it's in Hebrew, and it's Genesis chapter 38. This was written by Moses 1,400 years before Jesus walked on this earth. 1,400 years. God told him what to write, and he wrote it down. This is the story we just read and told you about of Judah and Tamar and the birth of Perez. Now, God has placed something really cool in this text, Genesis chapter 38. At 49 letter intervals, which only a computer could have done that, done the math and, and revealed this. So here we go, 49 letter intervals. We find in Genesis chapter 38, we find a name. You find the name of Boaz in 49 letter intervals. Now, this was hundreds, 1,400 years before Jesus. This was half a century before King David. You find the name Boaz. And then in 49-letter intervals, you find the name of Ruth. And this, in this one page, this small chapter, chapter 38. And then at 49-letter intervals, you find the name Obed. And then at 49-letter intervals, you find the name Jesse. And then at 49-letter intervals, you find the name David. All in chronological order. Boaz, Ruth, Obed, Jesse, David. In the Torah, written by Moses, in Genesis chapter 38 written 400 years before these people would be on the scene, you find the royal family tree of King David. All in chronological order. Boaz, Ruth, Obed, Jesse, David. Now, here's the question. How could Moses have known centuries before this happened these people, centuries before they were born or alive, how could he have known their names in the chronological order to have included them in the text of Genesis chapter 38 at 49-letter intervals? How could he have known? Because this was no accident. This was not just chance. Couldn't have had the, the, the probability of chance is off the charts. It's unfathomable. Because this is not Moses. 
This is not Moses. This is no accident. It is God's thumbprint, his giant thumbprint, assuring us that his word is of supernatural, godly origins. There's no way Moses could have known this except the writing of his hand, the pen, every letter being guided by God's hand, God himself. And this underscores for me, I hope it does for you, the confidence that you can have in the precision of the text, that it is overwhelming with implications that this is skillfully and crafted crafted in an amazing supernatural way by God himself from Genesis chapter 1 through Revelation chapter 22. And again, my encouragement, do not chase after Bible codes. Simply let this fact sink in. We can trust God's word. Every detail is there. By design. We may not yet understand it, but God has it there for a reason, and ultimately it leads us to the scarlet thread every time it leads us to Jesus. And I, for one, this morning, praise the name of Jesus for his sacrifice. Our scarlet thread throughout Scripture, God truly is great. And God orchestrated all of this for us. Watch this video. God's word from Genesis through Revelation is filled with God's story of his redemption for this world. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, I can guarantee this truth, he said, until earth and the heavens disappear, not a period or comma will disappear from Moses' teaching until everything has come through. Jesus is saying everything is there for a reason, every detail for a purpose. Your Savior God's lamb, his one-time sacrifice for all. Get to know him. Don't be satisfied with just hearing about Jesus. Get to know him personally. The psalmist wrote, my heart has heard you say, come and talk with me. And my heart responds, Lord, I'm coming. And don't let a day go by that you don't know Jesus better. I'm asking you this morning to do this. Keep pursuing Jesus every single day this week. Keep pursuing Jesus. And and the way we're going to ask you to do this is, would you read a chapter out of the Gospel of John each day, one chapter each day this week? Let's pray. God, these 66 books written by over 40 different people over the course of thousands of years contain one seamless, integrated story, your redemption, God, your redemption through the death and resurrection of Jesus, your son. God, I ask that you would increase in our lives an appetite for your word. May we pursue you, get to know you. May we submit to you in the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen.